Well, this morning, um, we are beginning a new series. We're going to be working our way through the book of Esther. So go ahead and turn there. If you aren't familiar with where Esther is, it's an Old Testament uh, book that comes after the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and just before the book of Job. And so go ahead and find that. Uh, And as you're doing that, I'm going to just answer this question. Why are we studying the book of Esther? Consider some things about this small book in the Old Testament. Not only are there no messianic promises, meaning uh, that at no point in the book is there a uh, mention of a coming Messiah, but God is not mentioned in the book. Not one character in the whole book explicitly prays, reads the scriptures, or gives to the poor. The only spiritual discipline that is mentioned is fasting. Esther is referred to by one commentator as the most secular of the biblical books, making no reference to God's name, to the temple, to prayer, or to distinctive Jewish practices. The Old Testament law is only mentioned one time, and then only as the basis for Haman's genocidal plot against Mordecai and the Jews in chapter 3. Compare that with secular laws being mentioned 14 times, and those laws seemingly being all-powerful since the laws of Media and Persia cannot be revoked. So why Esther in light of those things? Esther is the story of God's faithfulness and providence in the midst of messiness and uncertainty. It is a story of deliverance. And also, although his name is not mentioned, God is present because we know that where God's people are to be found, God is actively present. So let's look at the text for today and get into it. We're going to look at verses 1 through 9 of chapter 1 of Esther. Go ahead and stand and follow along as I read. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict, there is no compulsion. But the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King 
Ahasuerus. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you and we thank you for your word. Your word is truth and we ask you to help us, Lord, as we work our way through this new book, Lord. We want to glorify you through it. We need your help. So, Father, we pray that you would help us. Pray that for today, and we pray that for the weeks ahead. In Christ's name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Well, before we get to the verses that we're covering today, we need to lay a foundation for this book. So I want to look at some background for the book of Esther. And we don't know who wrote the book of Esther. We don't know who the author of the book was, and although it's debated as to when it was written, it was likely written between the late 5th century and the first half of the 4th century B.C. It takes place during the reign of King Ahasuerus, who reigned from 486 to 464 B.C. Now, Ahasuerus' Greek name was Xerxes, so if you have uh, an NIV Bible or another version of the Bible, you may have seen Xerxes in the text as I was reading and thought, you're reading the wrong text, and I'm not. Um, that is his Greek name. The book was likely written after the fact during the reign of Artaxerxes. This book is a celebration of Purim, written to make people want to read the book. You've likely felt that way some point, wanting to read through this book of Esther. I'm going to get back to that, but I want to pause here because there needs to be a word of warning. So if you tend to be a person who drifts off or checks up on scores or scrolls through text or any other thing while I'm covering history up here uh, or background or things like that, uh, I need you to pay attention here, Okay. Uh, because the book of Esther is not G-rated or PG-rated. You understand what I'm saying there? If you have children that you usually prefer to have in the sanctuary, I want to encourage you to at least consider maybe having them miss being in the sanctuary for this series, at least sections of this series. The reason is I'm, I'm, I'm not going to gloss over the messiness for the sake of trying to make the Bible look neat and tidy. Uh, it is not a neat and tidy book. The more I read it, the more I study it, the more I realize this is a messy, messy uh, situation. And so um, I'm not going to gloss over those things because the book loses the meaning of what it's intended to mean if we gloss over those things. Uh, and so if you have older children or teens that you uh, would say, no, I want them to be in here for that, I just encourage you, have a conversation with them. Talk to them. Let them know, hey, these are some things that we're going to be uh, looking at in the book of Esther, and maybe you and I should have a conversation ahead of time, okay? Uh, I hope that makes sense. I hope that um, that's okay with you. If you've been here for years, you know it's just not something I'm willing to do. If we're going to cover a book of the Bible, we're going to cover a book of the Bible. The Lord wrote it purposefully the way that he wrote it for us to deal with those messy things and not avoid and, uh, and ignore them just because we're in church. This is where we look at the word 
and we discuss the word and we go through it. So that's what we're going to do. That being said, Esther is a wonderful book, okay? So if that um, announcement made you think, well, why are we going through the book of Esther? Because it's in the, book, in the Bible, um, but also it is a wonderful book. One of the purposes of the book is to introduce Purim, which was celebrated annually by the Jewish people following its introduction here in Esther. Jews dress up in costumes, feast, celebrate, and laugh, replaying the events of this story annually. The story takes place in Susa, which is modern-day Iran. The message of Esther is this. God is faithful to deliver his people. In Esther, we can see that even after Israel has been unfaithful to him, God remains faithful and is preserving a people for his name's sake. It is a story of deliverance, and it's wonderful. And so I want to do a flyover, briefly a flyover, to get us to where we are at with Israel walking into the story of Esther. In Genesis 11, you know the story of the Tower of Babel, and these people are coming together to to create this great empire, and the Lord says, nope, and moves these people, separates these people in different directions, not understanding uh, one another in that. Go to the very next chapter, and beginning in Genesis 12, God makes covenant with Abraham. He chooses Abraham from among, among all of the peoples and makes covenant with Abraham. And that covenant continues through Isaac, Jacob, and their descendants. They will become a great nation. Those who bless Abraham and his descendants will be blessed. Those who curse him and his descendants will be cursed. All the nations of the earth, God says, will be blessed through them. The land of Canaan will be their everlasting inheritance. We fast forward, we get to Exodus 19, and the Israelites then enter the promised land. They have they've been delivered from the hands of the Egyptians where they were enslaved for 400 years. And once delivered, they spent 40 years wandering in the desert because of unbelief. And through the Mosaic Covenant, they have been given God's law, the Torah, and have been separated to God as a holy nation. The 12 tribes of Israel are allotted their portion of territory. We fast forward some more, and King David, after he conquers Jerusalem, makes it the capital of the kingdom of Israel, God makes covenant with David, that his dynasty would be an everlasting one. It's in 1 Chronicles 17. And his son, Solomon, is commissioned by the Lord to build the temple, the house of the Lord. And the Lord declares that his eyes and his heart would dwell there perpetually. When you come to 1 Kings 11, Israel is divided then into two kingdoms. The ten northern tribes that rebel against the Lord and set up an alternate religious system, worshiping God on their own terms. The tribes of Judah and Benjamin that remain faithful to the Lord for a while. A A remnant from the ten northern tribes joins the two southern tribes known as Judah to worship the Lord in Jerusalem. In 2 Kings 17, the ten northern tribes then are taken into captivity 
in Assyria. By this time, judgment has been prophesied against Judah as well for their rebellion against the Lord. A few chapters later in 2 Kings 25, the temple of Jerusalem is destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. You have a wave of captives that is taken into exile in Babylon. At that, at that point, a 70-year exile had been prophesied by the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29. You come to the book of Ezra, and you have a wave of Jewish exiles that return to Jerusalem. In Ezra 1, uh, verses 1 through 4, we're, we're told that Cyrus let some of the exiles return to Jerusalem in 539 B.C., and 42,360 Jews chose to do so, bringing with them 7,337 of their servants. Now, this is bringing us close to the setting and time of Esther. And it's at that point that King Cyrus of Persia permits them to begin rebuilding the temple. And you get to uh, Nehemiah, and there's another wave of exiles that returns to Jerusalem under Nehemiah, and the walls of Jerusalem are rebuilt. And yet there's a significant number that choose to stay as exiles. And so at this point, we come to the book of Esther. Now, we're not introduced to them in the text today, but we're not told why Esther and Mordecai chose to stay in exile or, while they, or why they remained in exile. We're going to see, starting next week, we're going to see that there are a lot of things they did not have choice of. We don't know why they're still there as exiles, why they chose to be there or why, why they're still there. But this week we're going to look at the conditions that they live in or live under. So we're going to look at Esther 1 and specifically at King Ahasuerus. Verse 1, now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. Now notice from the very beginning of this book, you read through the scriptures, when you start books of the Bible, there's usually an introduction about God or there's a prophet that's being introduced or, or something, a messenger or a message that's happening. In the opening of Esther, there's no prophet of the Lord. There's no mention of God's people. There's no mention of God. Instead, verses 1 through 9 reveals an arrogant pagan throwing an extended party to display his wealth and power. Ahasuerus, who again is better known by his Greek name Xerxes, reigned from 486 to 465 B.C., and it says he ruled 127 provinces that, that stretch from India to Kush. Now, that's southern Pakistan to northern Sudan on our current maps, which at the time is basically the known world and the greatest empire ever known. It continues in verse 2, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel. The city of Susa was the preeminent city among four capital cities used by the Persian rulers. It's situated in Elam, which again is southwest Iran, about 150 miles north of the Persian Gulf. It's in a plain with, with many rivers. And so Susa actually sums up the success 
and pleasure this king enjoyed. The citadel at Susa was a physical representation of the king's physical comfort and security and the success and glory of his reign. Verse 3, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. Now, this is the first reference of a feast in the book of Esther, but it will not be the last. The book is full of feasts and feasting. Food and drink would have abounded at these feasts. We don't know the occasion of the feast. There's, there's people who presume of why this great feast is taking place. We don't know for sure, but we do know from the next verse what the purpose of the feast was, at least what the king's purpose was. Verse 4, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. It was to show off, to show off the king's glory. The Christian Standard Bible translates verse 4 saying that it was a feast for Ahasuerus to display the glorious wealth of his kingdom and the magnificent splendor of his greatness. The list that the, the writer gives shows us that this banquet was for the great and the mighty, for those who upheld the structures and that supported the king's rule. And so what do you do when you want to demonstrate your glorious wealth and the magnificent splendor of your greatness to the leaders who serve under you? I'm asking, what do you do, right? Well, we see what the king does here. You extend that party for six months. You keep that thing going, right? Six months. A feast, a party for six months. It's an incredible thought. The pride of King Ahasuerus is on full display. But this is just the tip of the iceberg. We're going to see, this is just the beginning. He will do a very good job demonstrating his arrogance throughout this book. Verse 5. And when these days were completed, so the feast is finally over. The six months party comes to ends, right? It's time to clean up, maybe get back to work. Nope. Verse 5, when it's completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting seven days. He throws another party for those living in Susa. From the greatest to the least, they're invited to come. Now, this feast only lasts for one whole week. So I would ask you, have you ever had a party that lasted for a week? Anybody? You guys got to get with it. I mean, you got to do better. Whatever the purpose of this banquet is, everyone in the service of the palace was invited to join the celebration for those seven days. Seven days. Now, before you start to think, well, maybe this Ahasuerus is not such a bad guy. He welcomes all the people from the city to come and, and join in. He, he provides food and abundant food we're going to find. A leader doing a kindness to a select group doesn't change his character. 
we're going to see this is not going in a good direction, okay? Just because it's a party and a feast and all the people are invited, this is not good. But the setting and the decorations are magnificent. It's held in the enclosed garden of the king's palace. Verse 6 gives a description. There are white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods, marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. It must have been beautiful. The guests are treated to lavish surroundings. Verse 6 is an incredible description. Verse 7 continues. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. They're treated to not just lavish surroundings, but lavish provisions. There's much wine and the drinks served in golden vessels. There's vessels of different kinds. And so, uh, Corey, if you're walking around at this party and you bump into Mike, you don't have to suffer the embarrassment of having the same cup as Mike, right? These are all, this is just a demonstration of the uh, glory and riches of the kingdom. And then verse 8. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. It was incredible, and not in a good way, incredible. A declaration was made to let everyone at the party know that they were free to drink as much as they wanted. This is a hint at the lack of moral fiber in the king. His law permits a lawless free-for-all. Just think about this for a second. In order for those he was hosting to know they had freedom to drink as much as they want or abstain, the king made a royal decree, a royal decree on drinks. If this isn't a commercial for what the people lived under, we're not reading carefully enough. Verse 9, Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. Here we meet very briefly the queen, Queen Vashti. We're not going to get into um, much on her today. We'll get into that next week. She's hosting a separate banquet, a feast for the women in the palace. As you consider all of these verses, it's an incredible scene. We have in these few verses some evidences of the things that are coming in the book. And all of it stems from the pride of the king. Now I want to say here, we are all tempted with pride, all of us. We all want to be honored, all of us. Many of us have probably been hurt or even angry because others didn't notice or acknowledge our abilities or greatness. Pride is a temptation for all of us. And its end is fully displayed in King Ahasuerus. 
It was the exact opposite of who we are called to serve and delight in and imitate. The opposite. Our scripture reading earlier began with the words, the Lord reigns. Now there are several contrasts between the Lord who truly reigns over all, including King Ahasuerus and the king here in the text. There's a contrast between the two. We are exiles in this world. That's what the Bible tells us. We're exiles in this world, just as much as the Jews are exiles in this book. And the truth is, if I'm not regularly considering the greatness of the Lord, that the Lord reigns, I will be tempted, just as the king here, to consider my own greatness and to seek to display it to others and to be acknowledged, even worshipped for it as often as I can. Proverbs 16 verse 18 says that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. We're going to see the, the fruit of that in this book. We serve a king far greater than King Ahasuerus, one who truly is benevolent, one who invites us to feast with him now and forever. And we might, be, we might be tempted as we read chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, about this king and imagine what it must have been like for the people during that feast, that celebration, the beauty of the decorations, the food, the unending drinks. And we might be tempted to long for such a thing. We have to remember Christ offers us more. And his offer is one that comes from his own sacrifice for us. He laid down his life for us so that we might know him, that we might be with him forever. As great as, as King Ahasuerus' feasts were, they had a start and they had an end. God's banquet will have no end. And greatness in his kingdom is not found in self-promotion, but in self-denial. Jesus says to the disciples in Mark 10, 42 through 45, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so with you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I would ask you today, is this the kind of life we want to live? The kind that we want to display to the world, a life of self-denial, rather than self-promotion. If you know the end of the story, you know where the self-promotion of the king is headed. And if you know the Bible, you know where our own self-promotion is headed. God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. We're going to move into a time where we take the Lord's Supper and in, in discussing the Lord's Supper, one commentator, Derek Prime, contends this, there is there's no banquet on earth to compare with this. It is a love feast for pardoned sinners. 
whatever their status in human, in human society, this banquet is a foretaste of a far greater banquet to come, the marriage feast of the Lamb. Then we shall sit down and feast with Him forever. What a day that will be. We just consider that these simple elements, a small piece of bread, a small cup of juice, represent the greatness of Christ and the hope of a feast that will last forever. The greatness of Christ and that His body was literally broken for us. That His blood was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. And that He is alive and coming again to welcome us to His great banquet and to live with Him forever and ever. Those are truths that should bring rejoicing in our hearts. Yes, we remember His sacrifice and we know His sacrifice was was because of our sin, our sin that continues. And yet, we rejoice in the hope that we have life and forgiveness, everlasting hope, and that we will be with Him forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your goodness and Your grace. And Lord, we praise You for Jesus author and perfecter of our faith. We praise you for the hope that we have because of Christ, because of the gospel. And Lord, we ask you to help us, Lord. As we look at the pride of a, a king in the scriptures, Lord, we realize that in places we're just looking in a mirror. And we're just as tempted toward pride. And by your grace, we've been rescued. By your sacrifice, we've been one purchased out of that to a life of self-denial and love for you, Lord. And so help us. Help us to walk in those ways. Help us to be a people, a body of people, Lord, who love one another and serve one another and love those outside of this building, Lord, in a way that says Jesus lives and that you're good. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.